Welcome to this evening's event um, organized by the historical group of the Society. This evening's event is to mark the 40th anniversary of the go-ahead on the last all-British military aircraft, the Hawk. And it's a real pleasure to be able to celebrate this success story. Um, I said the historical group had organized it. In fact, it's Harry Fraser Mitchell who organized this, and we very much appreciate all the work he's put into it. We have three speakers to tell the story of the aeroplane. Harry, who was head of aerodynamics on the Hawk, and I think took the aeroplane from a three-view outline layout drawing to sometime after the first flight, um, and then went on to be, I think, deputy airframe, chief airframe engineer at Kingston. Um, he'll outline the development program, which culminated into entry into service as both a trainer and a light attack aircraft. Chris Roberts, who will speak second, was chief test pilot at Dunsfold and was also the project pilot for the T-45 Goshort for the U.S. Navy, together with McDonnell Douglas at Long Beach. Uh, Professor Andrew Bradley, who is current chief engineer Hawk at Bruff, um, is fully involved in the modern development of the Hawk with new systems to meet current needs and can tell us about the current status of the aircraft. Um, with no further ado, may I ask Harry Fraser Mitchell to tell us about the development of the aeroplane. Please welcome. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How nice to see some of my old friends. Uh, so glad you could come along. Uh, as uh, Kit has said, um, I was the head of aerodynamics on Hawk for about oh, 10 years, I suppose, up till about 81, and then uh, uh, moved up the ladder a little bit. Uh, I still didn't lose touch with the Hawk, um, but uh, I wasn't full-time on it. Um, now... Most people, of course, give their uh, acknowledgements at the end of their talk. But I'm going to give it at the beginning, because I suspect most of you will be nodding off by the time I, I finish. <laughs> and so I'd like to talk, well, many colleagues uh, have uh, uh, contributed to this. Um, uh, in particular, I, I would like to thank, uh, he's not here tonight, Chris Ferrara. Uh, at, he's the curator at Brooklands. And he's helped a very great deal. There's a good Hawk archive there. Uh, Brian Riddle at the National Aerospace uh, Library at uh, Farnborough, he helped as well. And uh, I also got some very useful help from uh, Chris Hodgson, who is here somewhere in the audience. Uh, so thank you very much. I'm going to talk about the early stages of the design, and I'm going to uh, summarize the developments uh, leading on into the 90s. The story could be said to begin in 84, uh, in 64 rather, uh, with AST-362, which called for a, a twin-engine trainer uh, having Mark 1.5 capability. I think uh, the uh, 
originators were looking for a T-38 or something like that, a USAF T-38. But what they got was an Anglo-French collaborative aircraft uh, based on the Breguet 121. Uh, and very quickly that became very heavy, very draggy. I mean, it even required um, part throttle reheat in the approach. It was that sort of aeroplane and was clearly not uh, suitable for a trainer. But it did have promise as a single-seat strike aircraft, and that's what it became as a Sepakat Jaguar. But it did leave the requirement for a new trainer unfulfilled. Now, what uh, uh, people really wanted was to take all those three aeroplanes uh, and turn them into one. The current, or the then current, uh, fast jet pilot training started off with the um, uh, strike master, well, no, the jet provost, I suppose, uh, in the middle there, side-by-side -side seating, capable of about, if you're lucky, I'm told, 400 knots. Um, and then they went on for fast jet training to the NAT, which is the one on the right. Much smaller aeroplane, uh, tandem. So they went from side-by-side -side to tandem. And then to get the weapons training, they had to go on to the Hawk two-seater, which is on the left, and uh, again, side-by-side. Side. So they had to switch around quite a, bit, quite a bit, and it was clearly not a very good way of doing things. And what the RF wanted was one aeroplane to do all three jobs. And uh, so that's what we went for. Now, in 68, Gordon Hodson, uh, who was working in the Hawker project office, at Kingston, and uh, headed by John Allen, who I'm sure you all remember. He went around all the training establishments and uh, to find out what those at the sharp end really wanted. And uh, he then drew up an outline specification, which was to be a high subsonic aircraft only, not more than 0.85, possibly less. Uh, but the main thing was it had to be easily maintainable. And crucially, uh, in order to make the project viable to HSA, remember they were, this was a PV project up to now, uh, it had to be designed to be an efficient strike aircraft as well as being an RAF trainer. Uh, this meant that you had to have uh, probably four pylons uh, capable of carrying reasonably heavy stores. The RAF only wanted light training stores, so they weren't in the running for that at all. So. Where did that get us? Well, we did a lot of feasibility studies. I'm just showing a few of you here. Um, the, uh, they started off with, with, in effect, I like to think of it as a Seahawk. Um, straight wing, uh, single engine, uh, tandem, as you can see, mostly. And uh, it was fairly obvious by the time we'd done the first few that uh, the straight wing was not going to get us very far. It could probably get up to 0.75, maybe a bit higher, but um, it needed a bit of sweep. And so you can see in the fourth, uh, in the bottom right there, uh, that um, they had a, a, a swept wing. You notice that the wing position varied from low to high to mid, and um, uh, there's things to be said uh, for and against all of those. And in fact, um, the wing position was, was arguable right up for quite a long time. 
So, but it looked from those early studies that you had to go to a swept wing. Now, there we had some swept wings. Um, some of them, as you can see, were side by side. Uh, some of them, uh, one of them, bottom left, was a tandem. Uh, the top left had a single engine, the others had twin engines. And it didn't look as though twin engines were going to work very well. Uh, why did we go for a single engine, which is what we did? Well, twin engines, you need two of everything. You need two lots of instruments, two lots of controls, and so on. So, more expensive. The engines were smaller, and because they were smaller, you know, the cost per pound of engines tends to be higher. And not only that, but um, when you're training, if you've got twin engines, you've got to train the chap uh, in how to cope with an engine out. And I've been told by one or two pilots who have been on twin-engine training aeroplane that uh, when the instructor shuts down the left engine, the student shuts down the right. And then you've got a, a dangerously quiet aeroplane. And, uh, you know, it, it, it meant more training. And uh, we wanted to try and keep this as simple and as uh, uh, compact as possible. So we went for a single engine. And I think another reason was that Hawkers had never done a twin-engine aeroplane. They weren't going to start now, were they? So we, we went for a single engine. The high and low wing, that was much more difficult. And uh, in fact, in the early stages, we couldn't make up our mind, and we, we left that till later. The high wing was better aerodynamically, or thought to be easier aerodynamically at uh, high speed with a low tail. Uh, the low wing was much better in a practical way. You could reach up and put, hang on the weapons without having great forklift trucks and things like this. Anyway, that was, that was what was said. But what were the conclusions from all this? Well, there, there are my conclusions. I reckon that uh, we more or less sorted it out. Uh, I've mentioned some of them already. Um, I think the the thing that really comes out of that um, was the last two. And that is the wing position needed more investigation. And we had a, a high intake because we were very worried about spray from the nose wheel going down the, the tube. And uh, so we wanted to uh, keep the intake high. So that's what we, we settled for. And to investigate the wing, we built a half-scale half-model and put it in the V-Stoll tunnel at Hatfield uh, to look at the low-speed characteristics. We also built a very small, 1 30th scale, high-speed model to be tested at Bruff. Uh, I think they have a blow-down, or they had a blow-down tunnel in those days. And this was our first nibble at what the high-speed uh, characteristics were going to be like. Uh, the low-speed test showed there was little to choose between the wing position. Uh, you could get high lift from both but the high-speed tests came out with uh, a, a very um, uh, strong message. And that was, and this, the one on the left, is the um, submission that we originally made. And the one on the right was the uh, uh, T1 as it was in its first flight. But you can see the, that gap there. Well, in the high-speed tunnel, there was a beautiful, strong, normal shock sitting in there. 
Um, not surprisingly, really, when you think about it. But um, we had to get rid of that. So the way to do it was to bring that down to there. We uh, were still worried about ingestion, but if we moved it forward, then it looked as though it would cope. And the other thing it did, uh, coincidentally, really, is it gave us a very good um, intersection between the wing and the cell, uh, which kept the wing isobar swept right up to the side and therefore, uh, you know, cut the drag down. The uh, high-tailed bosilus, um, what we did there was we, we brought, it, brought it, well, you can see it there better, we anhedraled it and brought it down. But you can see the big difference between the low intake and the high intake, and where it is, there and there. The um, original design on the left uh, didn't meet all the requirements of the ASR, and uh, it, it, uh, it, uh, it didn't get the time to height, it didn't get the endurance or the sustained turning performance. So. What we did was we reduced the weight by downsizing it. We replaced the Adua with a Viper, a developed Viper, um, which was, of course, much lower thrust, and therefore it pretty well destroyed the export potential of the aeroplane, unfortunately. But nevertheless, it was a lot cheaper, and we thought the Ministry would go for that. Uh, but we weren't happy with it, and so all we did was we put the Adur in place of the Viper in this small aeroplane. And then we found we had performance to excess. So we, what we did was we grew the aeroplane uh, until it was about 5% smaller than the one on the left. Those are roughly to scale. And um, uh, that's what we put in uh, eventually. Uh, the only other difference was on the left, the wing was a dry wing. And on the right, the wing was a wet wing. In other words, it was an integral fuel tank. Uh, but, you know, that was the way we went. Now, the engine. We chose the Turbomeca Adur, or the Rolls-Royce Turbomeca Adur, I should say. Uh, it was called the RT17206 in those days. And we chose it. We looked at a lot of engines. We looked at Viper, Avon, RB199, would you believe? Uh, Orpheus and the M45H. None of those were particularly good except the RT17206. That seemed to fit us quite well. The thing that it had going for it was that it was in service in admittedly a reheated form, but nevertheless it was uh, a good solid engine. Uh, it was heavy and it was expensive. But we got rid of the expensive bit by making it a government-furnished equipment, so they carried the cost. However, <laughs> uh, it was a modern engine, modular construction, and had a lot of stretch in it. It was given to us at 5,200 pounds of thrust, at sea level, I say, static, and it had a potential for 6,000 plus. So we thought that was a good thing to do, and it had a good fuel consumption, a bypass ratio of about 0.8, uh, so it, it had everything going for it, really. And so we chose the, chose that, uh, engine. But what happened then? The competition was won in October 71, and the contract for 175 aircraft was let. Now, 
there's a bit of doubt about the 175. I've seen papers which quote 175 and also 176. I rather suspect the, 100, the 176th aeroplane uh, was the uh, company development aeroplane, but uh, I don't know for sure. First flight, Duncan Simpson on the 21st of August, 1974, uh, which went tolerably well, I think. And uh, we used four test aircraft uh, in the main, uh, 154, 156, 157, 158, 159? I think 159. So, you know, and we borrowed aeroplanes from the Air Force from time to time. But uh, I can't go into the, the development. Uh, that's hopefully in a written paper, which is in draft at the moment, um, where, where I say a little bit about some of the tests we did. Uh, anyway, the interesting thing was, in the contract, there was a clause uh, which said that incentives could be offered to us for good maintainability and to meet um, uh, uh, reliability um, uh, targets. And um, in the end, uh, we got there. And I think we got an appreciable sum. I'm told it was something like two million pounds in then money, which is quite a lot of money, considering I think the whole contract was for something like a hundred million. So, it, you know, it was an appreciable amount. Uh, and the main thing was, the Hawk was on time, it was on cost, and it exceeded the performance required, at least exceeded or equaled the performance required. But as I mentioned earlier about the export aeroplane, this is where the aeroplane, we hoped, would make money. And this was the, one of the first aeroplanes, the 50 series aeroplane, actually Mark 51, for the Finnish Air Force. Yeah, it had virtually the same engine, and it was virtually the same as the T Mark 1, except that it had four pylon and, uh, uh, and gun pod underneath. Yeah, it could carry... 130-gallon tanks, as you see there, on the inboard pylons. Uh, they ordered 50. They had a very prolonged in-house investigation. And uh, this uh, triggered off other orders for the Mark 50. There was, a, I can't remember if it was 52 or 53, but there was Kenya and Indonesia. Kenya 12, Indonesia 20. So we got off to a good start. Now the Red Arrows, they swapped their nets for uh, the Hawk in 1970, uh, 79, and uh, interestingly, you see on the above image uh, it carrying two sidewinders. This was because uh, the Air Force suddenly thought, well, the Hawk is a pretty capable performer. If we put a couple of sidewinders on it, it will be quite useful in an emergency. So the idea was it would operate alongside a tornado or something, which would do the target seeking, and then the Hawk would buzz off and. Uh, uh, pop off its missiles at it. Uh, I don't think they were ever used. And I, I believe they were fired, but I don't think they were used. I'm sure they weren't used in anger. Well, I talked about the 176th aircraft. Um, maybe this was it. Uh, this was the company demonstrator, G. Hawk, ZA-101. Of cherished memory, I might add. We got very fond of that aeroplane. And... Uh, one or two of the people sitting in the audience actually flew in it. I didn't, but uh, uh, I think they have fond memories of it also. It was a very hard-working little beast. 
This is in its uh, Mark 60 uh, form. You see the, the wing is a little bit different. Um, the, the trainer, the Mark 1, had a couple of breaker strips there and there and a fence there. This aeroplane kept the fence, but it had three little mini fences, uh, which gave you a, a slightly better performance in high, for high lift. And um, uh, as I say, it was a hard-working aeroplane. It, it, I think it went to the USA for a couple of tours, and I think it even went down to Australia. Perhaps somebody else can confirm that. But the 60 series Hawk had a bigger engine, the Adua 861 as against the 851, or the 151 for the airport. And uh, this had a, a thrust of about 5,700 as against 5,200, so about 10%. Uh, but it had much more at high forward speed, at high Mach number. Uh, there was a cutoff on the 151, which didn't happen on the 161, and that brought up the thrust considerably. Um, it made the aeroplane into quite a good load carrier. Here you see eight 250-kilogram bombs and uh, a gun pod. And on here, you've got a Sea Eagle, two missiles. Not sure what they I think they're matras, I'm not sure. And uh, two 190-gallon tanks. Um, I'm cheating a bit, as indeed the company cheated a bit, because this is actually an RAF aeroplane. So it didn't have operable sidewinders on the outer pylons. It didn't have outer pylon. Uh, but the hard points were there, so it was easy to put them on. Similarly, these weren't functioning, because the RAF aeroplanes weren't fitted for tanks. But we flew it around and uh, showed that it handled reasonably well. Um, the 60 series was followed by the 100 series, and again, dear old G-Hawk on the left, now grew an elongated snout with uh, laser ranging and things like that. Uh, this has still got a 60 series wing on it. Uh, the, the, the production airplane, which is what you see here, uh, that has wingtip missiles and also uh, a changed leading edge. It had a drooped leading edge to give you a better performance at high Mach number. And uh, uh, as you see, also carried tanks and things in, in there. So that's the production 100 series. And there were later series, which I'm sure Andrew Bradley will tell you about. Uh, it had the 871 engine, which is about 6,000 pounds of thrust. And uh, again, more thrust at, at high speed. Uh, it was um, uh, very fully equipped inside. Um, I have to read this because I don't know what these things are. But it had, um, I'm told, optical laser ranging and FLIR sensors, inertial navigation, HUD, WAC, MIL 1553B, whatever that means, data bus, and a glass cockpit with HOTAS. I think I know what some of those things are, but I'm only a humble aerodynamicist. And uh, so I don't know what they all are. And I'm told you have to have them these days, even though they're fiercely expensive. But there we are. You need them. Well, naturally enough, from the 100 series, it was very easy to say, oh, well, let's um, cut off the nose and make it into a single-seater. It wasn't quite as easy as that. But uh, if you look at the left-hand slide, um, the, there's a the single-seater. 
And there's Jihawk again. And you can see what's happened. We've deleted the front pilot. Somebody said we ought to have deleted all the pilots, but I'm not sure. Not yet. We're not quite in that state. Um, and uh, you can see we cut that back, and the, the nose has a lot of avionics gear into it, um, radar and so forth. Uh, it also, and here we see a pre-production airplane. This has got the 60 series wing. Um, the later, uh, the production 200s have the 100 series wing. But here you can see uh, we've got some missiles, we've got large tanks, and in here are inbuilt twin cannon, uh, Mauser or Aden. So that frees up the centerline pile and you can carry a recce pod or something like that on it. Um, as I say, the production version has a 100 series wing, which maybe you'll see later. Now, I'm not going to say too much about this airplane because Chris Roberts had far more to do with it than I had and he's going to tell you a lot more about it. But let me just point out one or two of the, the features. Um, this airplane, I, I did a check-up in 1995 on the Hawk sales, and um, the U.S. Navy ordered, at, at that point, had, had ordered 218 airplanes out of a total of 718. Um, the Hawk uh, sales have gone up to nearly a 1,000 by now, but it was a, the biggest single order uh, we had had, certainly up to the end of 1995. Um, the changes. Strengthened undercarriage, longer stroke, twin nose wheels with a, a, a sling in the middle which you could catapult it off, um, full span leading edge slats. How I would have loved, as an old Hanley Page man, how I would have loved to have seen that on land-based aeroplanes. But Ralph Hooper, the chief engineer, wouldn't hear of it, and I could never justify it, uh, cost-wise or any other way. But I would love to have seen that. Anyway, there we are. Uh, it had side-mounted air brakes, because in the middle you had to have a, a hook. And the hook actually was part of a single ventral fin, as against the twin fins that we had on a land-based aeroplane. A bigger tail, taller fin. That... We call the tailplane canard vane. The U.S. Navy called it Smurf. We didn't believe it at the first, but they took it seriously and they called it a Smurf. I don't know what it stands for. Side-mounted something or another. Uh, what they did, they had a very important point because these flaps are very big and they give a lot of pitching moment, a lot of downwash. And we were finding on the earlier aeroplanes uh, that the undersurface of the tailplane would stall and uh, the aeroplane would pitch nose down. We called it Phantom Dive, because I believe the Phantom airplane had the same thing. Uh, now, what we found, and Barry Pegram did a lot of this, uh, was when you had that in front and below the tailplane, when the tailplane was in fully arc position, that thing threw a vortex, uh, which went over the underside of the tail and held the flow together. And uh, that was a complete cure for any problem that we had. Uh, in that respect. Um, the U.S. Navy men didn't believe it. And uh, we had, I showed it to them on the uh, wind tunnel model at um, Farnborough. And uh, Douglas Drake, who was their sort of team leader, uh, said, well, I'll never do anything. And he was absolutely astonished when it completely cured the problem. So I'm not going to say any more about that. It had the, a similar engine. Uh, they called it the F-405. 
which was at, I think, D-rated 871. Um, but what it did have, in, in addition, was it had a, an acceleration switch, uh, which um, very necessary on a carrier, which would uh, accelerate it from, uh, I think it was 70% RPM to 95% full thrust in three seconds, which was pretty rapid. So, why was the Hawk so successful? Well, those are my views, and I'm sure you have other views, and let's, let's hear from you in the discussion period. I, I personally think the most important of those things uh, was the developed engine, so we didn't have any engine problems, the maximum use of known technology, because, again, we wanted to keep it low risk. It was not an inter international collaboration, and thank goodness for that. Uh, the main reason, because we could keep it small and we could keep the liaison quick and we knew the people we were working as, we didn't have to go through umpteen committees. Uh, we could ring up Joe Soap and say, hey Joe, what about this? And, uh, you know, it was that sort of basis. And I think that's why it was on time and on cost. But, as I say, probably above all, it was these chaps. And uh, this was the... Uh, uh, not everybody, of course, but just a few people uh, got together on the 21st anniversary. And there's XX154, which is the first flight. Uh, a few people, uh, you, I ought to point out to you. There's Gordon Hodson. I think the father of the hawk. You can honestly say he was the father of the hawk. Uh, Gordon Hudson, who was the chief designer for a long time. Um, Chris Roberts. Hiding. Uh, Barry Pegram, who's here tonight, had a lot to do with the wind tunnel program. Um, Chris Ferrara, I mentioned, he was here for a long time in flight test. Uh, that's me. Um, John Allen is there. And, well, I could go on, but uh, uh, I have a, 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 a slightly enlarged picture which uh, you can see afterwards if you want to, which identified them all. Anyway, that's what I think uh, the Hawk success was due to, and I hope you agree. Um, but as I say, if you don't, let's hear from you later. There, there, as I say, there is a written paper which we hope to have in due course, uh, which will tell you a lot more detail, uh, much more than I can get through in 20, 25, I'm afraid, 25 minutes, Kit, sorry about that. Um, so I'm now going to hand over to uh, Chris Roberts. Uh, thank you for your attention.